This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for joining us again. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Freilich, who uh, returns uh, on the show today. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, thanks, Kieran. For those of you who haven't met him before on our show, Mike is a general internist uh, who is pursuing further research training at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He joins us by phone tonight. Uh, Hi, Mike. Hey, Kieran. So, listeners, we have a special show for you tonight. It's something different that we're trying out, and kudos goes to Dr. Freilich. It was all his idea. But we're going to do a rapid-fire show today. So instead of covering two articles in depth, we're going to cover four articles with just as much power and punch, but really just to give you the main meat of the message for each one of those articles. And Mike is going to take us through them one by one. So let's get right into it. Rapid-fire. Mike, what is the first article we're talking about? Perfect. So the first article we're talking about is entitled Benefits and Harms of Intensive Blood Pressure Treatment in Adults Age 60 Years or Older, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And this was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, lead author being Jessica Wise on January 17th, 2017. And so what was the research question? So the research question here is, what are the benefits and harms of intensive blood pressure control for patients over the age of 60? Important question. Why is this important overall, though? Well, I think, um, at least speaking for myself, post-sprint trial results, I'm not really sure what blood pressure uh, level I should be targeting. And um, when there's some studies that support one number and others that support another, I think that's a perfect time for a systematic review and meta-analysis. So it seemed uh, timely, if nothing else. I think that's reasonable. And we covered Sprint 75 on the show a while back, and that was a sub subgroup of the entire Sprint cohort. So I think you're right. It's time for a rethink. So what was the table one for this study? Yeah, for sure. So um, this systematic review and meta-analysis included um, 21 randomized controlled trials and three observational studies, the average age being 60 or higher. Um, They included over 40,000 patients. And what was nice is that they included both high-risk patients, people with diabetes and cardiovascular disease, as well as lower-risk patients. And they included patients with mild um, hypertension, as well as those with severe high blood pressure being defined as over 160 uh, millimeters of mercury systolic, and they had a good length of follow-up, so about a medium follow-up of three years for the majority of the studies. A broadly applicable meta-analysis, what did they find? Um, The main results were that a blood pressure target of less than 150 systolic was associated with a decreased risk of death, heart attack, and stroke. And to get a sense of the um, extent of the risk reductions, relative risk reductions ranging from 10 to 25 percent, which is pretty impressive. And then looking at the blood pressure target of less than 140 systolic, um, similar findings, but a non-significant decreased risk of um, death. And of course, the other important question is what about the harms? Interestingly, they found that um, lower blood pressure targets were not associated with increased risk of fall or cognitive impairment, but were associated with increased risk of hypotension and syncope. And I should mention up front that it's really only been the SPRINT trial that um, used a blood pressure cutoff of less than 120 systolic in a large randomized trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so beyond that limitation, if, that, if you consider it one, uh, what were the main limitations overall for this meta-analysis? So one is that 
their actual research question wasn't comparing 150 systolic versus 140 or 150 versus 130. The question was really just, what are the benefits and harms of intensive blood pressure control? So it's important to note that their primary question wasn't, is 150 the right target? It's also important to note that the gold standard, if there is one for meta-analyses, usually involves individual patient level data, and they didn't have access to this because it's very, very time consuming. Another limitation is that although these studies included individuals uh, who on average were over the age of 60, it also meant they were including some people who were less than the age of um, 60 as well. So definitely some heterogeneity there. Mm. And uh, what, what do you think the take home point uh, from this whole study was? Well, I think we have uh, very strong evidence to suggest that a blood pressure target of 150 systolic for patients over the age of 60 is certainly uh, reasonable. Um, but I think also I'm thinking more and more that it's probably not going to be a you know one size fits all regardless of the age group or the degree of frailty. I think we need to kind of um, probably tailor our results and our recommendations depending on you know the patient who's sitting in front of us and considering their comorbidities as well as um, the other usual factors we consider before um, treating someone for their high blood pressure and picking a target. So is it fair to say it's not a practice changing in meta-analysis for you? I don't think it's practice changing for me, but I think certainly we have some support that yes, the sprint uh, trial results included elderly patients. However, we have some very high quality evidence that uh, a blood pressure target 150 is, is, is quite reasonable for people over the age of 60, of course. All right, let's move on. Next one. All right, perfect. So next study, um, staying within the realm of hypertension, this study was entitled The Effect of Combination Therapy on Adherence Among U.S. Patients Initiating Therapy for Hypertension, a cohort study. And this was published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. Um, the first author is um, Julie Laufenberger and Dr. Mike Fisher, and it was published uh, January 3rd, 2017. So I don't think we're going after blood pressure targets here. What was their research question? Yeah, exactly. So this research question was an interesting one that I've often wondered about is whether or not combination pills, so, you know, prescribing someone, let's say, a hydrochlorothiazide and an ACE inhibitor all in one pill, as opposed to people who are getting individual pills, what strategy will improve um, adherence to their medications? Okay. And uh, so what was the study designed for this? Sure. So this was a large retrospective cohort study um, using claims data from 2009 to 2013, and it was comparing rates of adherence for patients newly started on a blood pressure medication. So this wasn't this wasn't people who were chronically on a medication; they were switching to something. It's um, looking at people who weren't on a medication before. They're newly starting a blood pressure medication, and it looked at essentially three groups, those receiving a combo pill, those receiving single therapy, or those receiving multiple individual pills to treat their high blood pressure. Okay, and what was their primary outcome when they were looking at this design? So the primary outcome was looking at long-term adherence, and they assess that 
based on well, a couple ways, but one was looking at the proportion of people who were still taking their medication one year out, and also looked at just in general how long people were taking their medications. What did the people in this study look like? Um, so this study included about 500,000 patients. The mean age was 50, half were women and half were men, 10% had diabetes, and about 1% had chronic kidney disease. So um, patients probably a uh, typical patient that family physicians uh, would be seeing in their office. It sounds like a patient I know certainly as well. What are the what were the main findings of this study? Um, so the main results were comparing the combo pill to the single therapy, and they found that patients who were on the combo pill were 13% more likely to be adherent to their medication, and about 10% more likely to be persistently taking the medication. So two strong signals, or two signals at least, that suggested combo therapy improved adherence. More likely to take it and more likely to keep taking it. What were the limitations of this study? Um, so a couple of the limitations. So one is that they didn't specifically look at adverse events in depth. And I always kind of wondered, you know, so maybe if you take an ACE with a risk of hyperkalemia and hydrochlorothiazide with a risk of hypokalemia, maybe the two balance each other out uh, and there's lower rates of adverse events. Or maybe people are more likely to get dehydrated, acute kidney injury, etc. So that was one thing that I was certainly curious about. Um, and also, um, there's always a possibility of unmeasured confounding factors when we're, um, when we're reviewing the results of a cohort study. Yeah, for sure. You know, maybe you're more likely to prescribe a combination pill to a certain type of individual than not. What, what do you think the take-home point was? For sure. I think the take-home point, so number one, patients don't take their medications as a as a general rule, it seemed like based on the, the study results. So even in the adherent group, it was only about 50, 55% who are still taking those blood pressure medications one year out. But this is an effective strategy, at least to modestly increase patients' adherence. And certainly from a public health standpoint, it's um, a strategy that could help to improve overall rates of adherence. But, you know, on an individual to individual basis, the effect sizes were pretty small. I got to say, I already kind of knew it, but it still is disheartening to think that I'm trying my best to do well by my patients. And nevertheless, only half of them are going to listen to what I have to say. That's not so bad, I guess. Agreed. All right, Mike, let's move on to the third article. Perfect. So we're going to move away from anything blood pressure related. Um, and this study was entitled The Implementation of Lung Cancer Screening in the Veterans Health Administration. The first author was Kingsinger and was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, January of 2017. What was their research question? Yeah, so their research question was essentially what happens when a lung cancer screening program is launched in the non-randomized controlled trial world or the real world? Hmm. Lots of talk these days, especially in Canada with our uh, updated guidelines on lung cancer screening. So why is this important overall? So I think overall, a lot of the screening that's been recommended in general often there's no hard endpoint that's improved like mortality. But for lung cancer screening, there definitely is a mortality benefit. And that's been proven in very rigorous randomized controlled trials. And the U.S. and the Canadian guidelines are pretty similar that people between the age of 55 and 75 in Canada and a little bit older in the U.S., 
who were heavy smokers or current smokers or recently quit, that they will benefit from a low-dose CT to screen for lung cancer. So what was the study designed to answer this uh, research question? So essentially, it was a retrospective descriptive study of a lung cancer screening project that was rolled out at eight veteran health affairs hospitals in the U.S., So just to explain what these hospitals are, it's a system of hospitals and they provide care for about 7 million U.S. veterans, the vast majority of whom are male, and the majority of them are current or past smokers. And they applied pretty stringent criteria to identify patients within the Veteran Health Affairs hospitals who could be screened. So they used criteria like if your life expectancy was greater than six months, if you met the smoking history criteria, if you didn't have an active cancer, and you didn't have a serious medical comorbidity that would preclude um, screening, i.e. if your life expectancy was less than five years. Mm. So of all of that screening that they did, what did the average patient look like in this study? For sure. So they found that about 4,000 patients met criteria for screening, um, but only 2,000 agreed to go ahead with screening, which is definitely interesting. Um, 97% of the patients were male, which makes sense given the patient population. The average age was 65. About three quarters of the patients were Caucasian. And the average pack year, wait for it, was 55 pack years. Wow, that's a lot of smoking. Yeah, yeah. And 60% uh, had a greater than 30 pack year smoking history. So um, impressive. Very, very. What were the main results? So the main results, so the first, as mentioned, only about 50% of patients agreed to screening. And... Of the 2,000 patients who were screened, 60% had nodules. So obviously the question is, who cares? Were these nodules that were cancerous or not? So just to break that down further, of the 60% who had nodules, 90% of those patients would require serial scans to follow those scans over time. And only 4% required further diagnostic workup because they were suspicious for lung cancer. And lung cancer thereafter was confirmed in 31 patients. So about 2% of the nodule group. So that's important. The other pretty impressive finding is that 40% of patients had incidental findings. These included emphysema, coronary artery calcification, and other pulmonary abnormalities, which is twice as high as the rate in the randomized controlled trials. And I'm sure people are wondering, you know, well, what was a criteria for incidental findings? They were pretty strict. A radiologist essentially decided whether or not it was incidental based on the characteristics of it and if it would require follow-up thereafter. So those are some of the basic results. Yeah, I wonder, uh, you know, this, this, this is the dreaded pulmonary nodule, um, how much radiation that is that these people got and how much increased risk of cancer they're at just as a consequence of the CT scans they undergo, let alone their smoking history. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a good question. And um, I know these are um, low-dose CT scans. I can't honestly tell you um, how much radiation that equates to, 
but it brings up a good point about, you know, like, what are the harms here? So there was an editorial associated with this, uh, and they kind of broke the numbers down like this. If you screened a 1,000 people, um, 10 would be diagnosed with an early stage, potentially curable lung cancer, um, 5 with an advanced stage, likely incurable lung cancer, uh, 20 will undergo unnecessary invasive testing, um, and they approximate 550 will experience unnecessary alarm and repeated CT scanning. Yeah, and one thing that is not mentioned but is on the Canadian lung cancer screening infographic is that through all of that screening and investigation, one person would die from invasive follow-up testing. Uh, so that is uh, food for thought, I think, as well, when you're thinking about the potential harms of this kind of a screening program. But interesting, nevertheless, uh, that you're catching a lot of cancer. What about the main limitations? Anything to talk about there? Uh, yeah, so relatively short duration of follow-up, so only a year of uh, follow-up. This was a you know, non-randomized study, and there was a lot of missing data and missing relevant endpoints. Like, it would have been interesting to know if maybe people stopped smoking after they got these CT scan results. Even if it showed emphysema or a nodule, that would have been interesting to know, and that definitely might influence decision-making. There's also this idea about the incidentaloma and in the editorial, they kind of quoted, you know, there's going to be 40 incidental findings for one lung cancer being found. However, I mean, emphysema, yeah, that might be an incidental finding, but maybe that'll be a good incidental finding in that that could provide some further impetus for patients to attempt to quit smoking, for them to be treated for that. So I think it's something important to think about. Definitely. You think of the pictures on cigarette cartons uh, of somebody else's lungs and how bad they look. But what if they're your own lungs? Is that a different impetus to quit smoking? Quite a fascinating thought. Maybe there's a study in there somewhere. Practice changing for you, uh, Mike? Um, well, I think what was nice about this is it at least provides me with a better sense of what harms should I uh, talk about, what are some of the downsides of screening to talk about, and this gave us some useful data outside of the clinical trial setting, so I, I found it very helpful for sure. Okay. Last but not least in our journey together, article number four. All right, so uh, last up is unrelated to blood pressure and unrelated to lung cancer screening, but related to the lungs. So this study was entitled Association Between Tracheal Intubation During Adult In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Survival. This was published by Dr. Anderson in JAMA on January 24th, uh, 2017. And what was their research question? So the research question was, is tracheal intubation during adult in-hospital cardiac arrest associated with survival to hospital discharge. Okay. And why is that important? I, I think it's somewhat intuitive, but take us through it. For sure. So, I mean, Kieran, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like on those nights as senior resident, which you are still living and I'm slightly, slightly away from, from those days, but I just yes. can remember so many code blues, a cardiac arrest, and anesthesia obviously wants to intubate the patient, 
and we want them to can we would just want people to continue giving CPR and then the intubation is done it's you know they're they know what they're doing it's almost always successful but I always wonder is that what should we, we should be focusing on? What should be the main thing that we're focusing on? And right. you're not going to have a randomized trial to answer this question. So maybe this is one way at getting a, a better sense of this question. Okay, so how did they go about answering this question? For sure. So this was a retrospective observational cohort study of patients with an in-hospital cardiac arrest from 2000 to 2014 so there's this fascinating registry that's available, and actually anyone can utilize data from this registry for any um, researchers out there. It's called um, Get With the Guidelines uh, Resuscitation Registry, and it includes about, I think, 600 hospitals throughout the U.S., and they capture data of all in-house uh, arrests at those hospitals, and they have very meticulous details that are captured. So using that registry, essentially what they did was they looked at patients who were intubated at any given minute, minute zero, one, two, three, etc. And those patients were matched to patients who were at risk of being intubated, i.e. people who are still receiving resuscitation, and matched to them using propensity score methods based on patients' um, age, sex, comorbidities, hospital characteristics, time of the cardiac arrest, etc. And I should mention that they excluded, you know, the code blue at Tim Hortons. Um, they excluded any code blues that were when people didn't have a cardiac arrest. So the cardiac arrest was defined as a pulseless arrest requiring either CPR or defibrillation. The real deal, so to speak. And I got to say, I am impressed at the granularity of this uh, registry to have the timing of the intubation. Usually one of the limitations of our, you know, administrative data is that you don't get that kind of information. This is an impressive uh, registry. I agree. And it's not perfect, but I, I agree. It really is impressive what's available uh, within it. For sure. So what were the primary outcomes that they looked at here? So the primary outcome was a very relevant one, and it was survival to hospital discharge. And they also looked at return of ROSC, so looking at return of spontaneous circulation. So I think there's an extra return in there. But anyway, they, they looked at ROSC. Return on your return. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Kieran, I'm no longer a resident, so I, I fortunately no longer have to run these codes, but I should still know <laughs> what they stand for. Um, so they looked at good functional outcome and also a neurologic disability scale. So some very relevant uh, endpoints. All right, so take us through their table one. What does the typical patient look like who unfortunately suffers a cardiac arrest? Yeah, for sure. So they included uh, about 110,000 patients, which is quite impressive from a sample size standpoint. The average age is about 70, and 20% of the patients survived to discharge. The median time to intubation was five minutes, and they had both the intubation group and the no intubation group. And obviously listeners are going to be saying, yeah, but how did these groups compare? Maybe intubation group patients were sicker, older, etc. All very good points. But before any matching was done, they had the intubation group had similar um, age distribution, sex, cardiac risk factors, similar hospital level, level characteristics, same timing of the day when the arrest occurred, but they did have more um, non-cardiac comorbidities. And I should mention that for the no intubation group, they were more likely to have their arrest witnessed 
they were less likely to have asystole, uh, and they were more likely to have a ventricular fibrillation uh, arrest. Okay. Uh, so what were the main results, keeping all those uh, important points in mind? For sure. So keeping those points in mind, so their sample size dropped from 110,000 to 80,000 when the imbalances I talked about were then matched. So they now had a lower sample size. The main results were that survival was lower amongst patients who were intubated compared to those who were not in a relative risk of about 20%. Just barely uh, reaching statistical significance for the secondary endpoint of uh, return of spontaneous circulation, um, but also that patients um, who were intubated um, had worse functional status on discharge. Hmm. And you sort of hinted at some of them, but what were the main limitations you thought from this uh, study? Yeah, so obviously it's a, a non-randomized study, and you obviously worried about unmeasured confounding factors. How else did these patients differ aside from just the factors that we were aware of? We also don't know other factors like um, what was the pre-arrest time and that's something that you'll probably never know and also the definition of a cardiac arrest. These arrests might have been respiratory in nature and if untreated then resulted in a cardiac arrest. So a few of the limitations, but obviously the biggest one is that this is not a randomized study. Right. So with all of that taken together, what do you take away from this, Mike? Yeah, so I was talking to a, a colleague here beforehand about this article, and her response was, so what, you're just going to stop intubating people in a code? And um, obviously that isn't the take-home point. But what is important is that I think as we kind of have that feeling of already, it's the high quality CPR that we should probably be focusing on the most. You know, it's no longer ABC, airway breathing circulation, it's CAB, because you want to be doing those compressions. The compression should really be the prime focus. Um, and I feel, you know, I feel even stronger um, to support that. And it's important to mention that this isn't the first study that's shown this result, but it's certainly the biggest study. So that's a take-home point, I think, for me, is focus on the chest compressions. I think you're absolutely right. Chest compressions and early shock are the only two things really that have shown to be of major benefit when it comes to cardiac arrest. And perhaps the distraction of intubation is driving the increased rates of mortality because they're not getting the two most important things or they're delaying those as a consequence. Well, Mike, what a whirlwind. I don't even think there's time for good stuff today because it was so intense, but I loved it. Thank you so much. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, for sure. More than happy to, Kieran. Definitely, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?